Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Abigan. And this is special guest Andrew Carter. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Kiss Monster, the final as of this podcast, KISS studio album. So KISS has a relative amount of success with Sonic Boom in 2009. Um, the album goes gold, largely perhaps through its distribution through Walmart. And come 2011, um, 2012, they decide to reunite with co-producer Greg Collins, to make another studio album. They begin recording in Conway Studios, mostly also Hanson Studios in Hollywood for basic tracks. They finish up overdubs at the Nook Recording Studios, Greg Collins' uh, uh, personal studio. And they come up with 13 tracks called Monster. Um, they use a recording system called CLASP, which stands for Closed Loop Analog Signal Processor, which is kind of a hybrid between pure, pure analog and digital recording. Um, from what I've been able to research, it saves them the transfer time uh, from recording directly to two-inch tape and then having to dump it into Pro Tools. So they are recording to analog tape, but then they're simultaneously reading the output of that recording and recording it into Pro Tools. And that allows them to do some kind of interesting and nifty things. Um, they are able to change on the fly whether they're recording at 15 ips or 30 ips. So for those of you who don't know, um, two inch analog tape would be recorded at two different speeds, either 15 ips or 30 ips. And there were advantages and disadvantages to both. Ips is inches per second, right? Ips is inches per second, yes. Yeah. So okay. um, if you were recording at 15 ips, then that would give you a more robust bottom end. So you might want that for your bass. On the other hand, if your bass was having trouble cutting through the track, you might want a better high end on your bass. So you might want to try recording it at 30 ips. But if you're recording pure analog, everything on the two inch would be recorded at the same speed. So this gave them the option to get a little bit more creative with the contour of the sound and decide which instrument they wanted to record at 15, which they wanted to record at 30, and they could make those choices individually. So um, they record the album in much the same way. Um, on again, off again on tour between April 13th, 2012 and January 6th. It's released in October 2012. Um, Paul Stanley has essentially the same stipulations, no outside writers, no chasing trends, no uh, everybody plays their own instruments. Tommy gets writing credit on 10 out of 13 songs, and the album kicks off with Hell or Hallelujah. All right, I liked, uh, I liked it. I wouldn't say it's my favorite uh, on the album. I like the, what did I write here? 
I didn't write anything. Okay, so I said um, that it's a good anthem. Um, it's, I mean, I like the concept of hell or hallelujah. You know, it's either going to be a disaster or it's going to be the greatest moment of your life, which is a good way to sort of start off this album. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated. Okay, two things that are sort of album in general. One, this is the first album. I have a, um, I have a cheap little um, speaker set, that can, Bluetooth speaker that connects to my phone that I use to listen to down in the basement. Uh, most of these Kiss albums on it. This is the first time that I've turned it on, started the Kiss album, and it's literally the limiter has shut the speaker off. Like, I actually shut the entire speaker off. Interesting. Which leads me to believe that it was recorded differently than all the other Kiss albums, which don't, you know what I mean? Like, I'll have everything cranked and nothing will just blare out. Um, My guess is that it has to do with how this album was mastered. And there's been a lot of criticism about that. Um, you know, one of the things that had, had was yeah. ongoing during the time these albums were made is something called the Loudness Wars. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading about that as well. Yeah. And so basically, you know, every band wants their album, especially hard rock and metal bands, to be the loudest. And the way that you do that is you run... Uh, your audio through what's called a brick wall limiter and you can make it very loud but you also end up clipping all the transients so um it can be very fatiguing on the ear and it kind of got silly um the first album that kind of went above the normal sound levels and and closer to a brick wall limiting was appetite for destruction which sounds great but then people kept taking it more and more and more to that limit. And it's ridiculous, especially because if you're listening to a song on the radio, it doesn't really have the same effect because it's all, yeah, they all go through limiters anyhow. So there's the sound is right. going to even out. Um, to hear a really egregious example of this, there's an album by the Wild Hearts called The Wild Hearts Must Be Destroyed. And you will notice if you put that album on, it is incredibly loud. And after listening to about one song, your ears are so fatigued, like you, you don't want to hear anymore. And it's a good album too. It's a shame. Uh, okay. Well then that, that's uh, okay. So there was something different about it. I assume because it was done post you know post 2010 when technology was a little bit better at that point um that it was boosted you know what i mean and did something yeah my guess is that it's over compressed in the mastering yeah okay so it was it was interesting that it totally just blew everything out um and again i like the you know it's another i think it was also interesting because this is when did sonic boom come out 2009 yeah Okay, so this is three years later. There was an 11 year hiatus. So it's uh, a hell or hallelujah means, you know, we're, it almost reads like we're getting too old for this at this point. Uh, you know what I mean? Or not even that way, but it's sort of like this is either going to be great or it's going to be a mess kind of deal. And that's how I took it. I like it. It's a nice anthem. You know, it's he's ridden the, he's ridden the road to heartache and traveled the ship of fools you know he's done everything wrong but still he's managed to survive and stay on top and it's got a pretty killer riff and it's loud as hell yeah mm -hmm. yeah i mean my, to me the difference between sonic boom and monster we sort of talked about how sonic boom was a little undercooked you know um they weren't trying too hard they didn't want to overanalyze everything i think th this album is an album where they said well sonic boom was successful what if we gave it our all what if we 
took our time and really, you know, did our best in every aspect of this album. And I think these are the results. So, Andrew? Yeah, I think this is, um, it's a good, solid, strong opener. It's, um, I mean, it's not one of my all-time favorite Kiss songs, but you do know exactly who it is the minute that Paul Stanley starts singing. And it just, um, it's, um, yeah, for, for some reason, it just, like, it's, it, it's a strong opener, but it doesn't speak to me as strongly as a lot of the other album openers did. I mean, my, my yeah, it's no creatures of the night, but it's still close. My, my favorite memory to do with this song is actually when they did that co-headlining tour with Motley in uh, the summer of 12. At that point, this record was not yet, the full album was not yet out. It didn't come out till October, but Hell, Hell or Hallelujah had been released as a single. And this was at the time when you know, we were well into the era where trying to get people to actually pay for recordings um, was underway. And so during the introduction, the vocal introduction for uh, Heller Hallelujah at the uh, at the Vegas show, Paul Stanley was like, well, this one's out on iTunes and and I bought it. And then he says, you know, in his classic stage list, because I support the band. <laughs> and I just started laughing. It was just like, I couldn't believe that it had gotten to the point where Paul Stanley had to sort of just say like some like, just really, really sarcastic remark like that. I, it was hilarious. Um, but ultimately that's, I'm always going to remember this song by that that stage wisecrack. It's funny that you say that because I was I was doing my research. There's a weird lack of coordination between the tours and the album releases for both Sonic Boom and Monster because I was trying to see, think in my mind, when did I see Kiss on the Sonic Boom tour? And I didn't. I saw them on the Alive 35 tour, which came when they came to town right after Sonic Boom came out and they played songs from Sonic Boom, but they didn't call that the Sonic Boom tour. Then they went to Europe and they called that the Sonic Boom tour, but then they came back to America for what would have been the Sonic Boom tour, but they didn't call it that, they called it something else. And then they did the tour with Motley right when you said this single was out, but that wasn't the monster tour, that came afterwards. So yeah, there's kind of a, a weird, um, you know, the, the, the pegs weren't fitting into the holes in terms of coordination. I, I did look at that. I think what happened there is that the North American fans, um, I guess, or in terms of them trying to sell tickets in North America, the greatest hits kind of just market, you know, marketing the legacy side of it works in North America, whereas in rest of the world, they can actually promote the new record because people were still buying it and, um, you know, there was South America, there was Europe, there was Asia. And yeah, I was trying to think, how come I didn't see the monster tour? And then I realized because there were almost no shows of it in North America. It was, it was the big kind of spider thing, uh, you know, the, the lighting rig, but none of us really got a shot to do that. They did Canada, they did Europe, they did South America and they did Asia, Australia, but they didn't come here. And I guess just because people weren't just, people aren't buying records here, but People are buying concert tickets. So I think it was just strictly down to marketing. So Mike? Yeah, to focus on the record, I would say the production is a little more refined than Sonic Boom was. Sonic Boom was kind of like a, almost like a rock and roll rover kind of demo-ish quality approach to recording. And, you know, this album, you know, resonates in the way that it, it, it's more produced, which, which is cool to me. Um, I think, you know, as an opener, it's a great opener for, you know, this song in particular, Hello, Hallelujah, but also too, you know, it's, you know, I think I Story Your Love might've been the template for the, you know, for the riff. For sure. 
Yeah, and I think that overall, like the, the guitar soloing on this record is, you know, compared to Sonic Boom, obviously Sonic Boom is like, let's go to, you know, the hot licks of Ace Frehley and pull those and and that's what you're going to do. Whereas this, in a way, is like the, the cool blend of like Tommy doing his his thing on guitar, but also like the Bruce Kulick influence in a way. Like I hear a lot of Bruce Kulick in these solos, which again shows the diversity of, of Tommy's guitar playing. Um, you know, but then again, too, like, you know, these guys are, you know, not above, like, you know, dwelling on their influences in a way. Like, there's that, you know, Days and Confused kind of, you know, thing in the solo as well. Yeah, that's they, a total they, they Zeppelin of, nod when yeah. Paul starts singing the notes along with Tommy's descending guitar line, for sure. Yeah, which, you know, Van Halen did on the, on the 5150 tour. I mean, they, they, you know, everybody's done it, you know, but at the same time, too, like, there's a quite, there, there, there are quite a few instances, instances on this record where they revisit, you know, bands that they've been around, you know, playing with, you know, and they, they bring that in, into the album. Whether that was intentional or an influence, I don't know. But either way, great opening song uh, for the record. And, you know, it, it, again, it sounds like a band. At the same time, too, when you think about how many times these guys have changed lineups, you know, they, I think this is the kind of, kind of thing where, like, okay, Tommy finally found his place in the band, but what have they done since then? You know, they really should have continued it in, in, in that regard. You know, like this is a good start to establishing the fact that it's a new band. And let's do that again. But they never really revisited that. So, yeah, which is a shame because Paul, at one point, I know, wanted to do another Kiss album. And uh, yeah. now I think he's dropped that idea, um, you know. And I understand from the perspective, you know, they could probably make more money playing a few arena shows than they would make from total album sales just because that's, hmm. you know, physical media doesn't sell nearly in the numbers that it used to. And it's a lot, whole lot more work and effort and time on their part. But at the same time, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I, when people say, what's your favorite Kiss album? I always say the next one. Um, and I think, I think there's a part of them too that, that feels, I've read in interviews where both Gene and Paul feel like the ultimate Kiss album has yet to be made. Um, so, but in terms of Hell or Hallelujah, I think the song is about Paul's divorce. And I think the clue is when he talks about money makes the rules. Um, I remember reading an interview with him at one point where he, he was joking and he said, you know, no woman ever said I got too much in a divorce settlement. And I, <laughs> I think that there was a, sort of a lingering bitterness about that that, that is, uh, shows his line, it, its ugly head here. Um, I think... They kind of reference the Beatles in, in the line, I'm looking through you, um, mm -hmm. kind of a nice callback to got to choose and Paul saying, this time I get to choose. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I know that the chorus came late in the writing of this song, Hell or Hallelujah. I'm not crazy about the way it, it bumps up to the line. It feels good. And then they go into hell or hallelujah. Well, I mean, obviously hell doesn't feel good. It seems like there's, no. that's a weird transition to me. Um, and Mike, I know you and I have had a conversation that you're kind of bothered by uh, the, there's, there's a weird uh, sympathetic resonance uh, of feedback on this song that they chose to keep in. And for those of you who don't know, so like when an opera singer hits as especially high note there's a sympathetic resonance in certain types of crystal where the, the crystal can shatter the first time i ever experienced this was i was playing a live show and we had an acoustic guitar up against the wall and we were playing a song in e and i heard this 
weird overhang tone of like an E harmonic ringing. And I could tell that nobody was playing it. And I'm like, where in the hell is that coming from? And I realized that the bass guitar was causing a sympathetic resonance that was making the acoustic guitar play that low E note, which was weird. And I think they had a similar accident on this song that they could have corrected and they chose not to um, because they ended up thinking it was a happy accident. I like it. You don't, but we can agree to disagree. As we always have. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So. The group dynamic. Yeah. Wonderful. Wall of sound. Uh, It's a Zeppelin riff. I do like that, again, Heller Hallelujah and Wall of Sound are both song titles that are not generic. Like, I actually kind of like them. Um, I can't, the, um, there's actual bass playing in here, and I guess I forgot to mention that about the other one. There's a, there's the Gene Simmons glissando third or fifth ride that he does. He always does like Juden, you know, like that when he's playing and does that in uh, Heller Hallelujah. This one, he's got a, um, he doubles the riff or whatever. Like there's actual parts where I'm hearing him play, which is nice. Um, I like the clever title. I'm still don't know what the song is about. I mean, you know, he's saying, uh, first he's saying it all comes down to the wall of sound. And then at the end, we all bow down to the call of sound, or is it just all the same, bow down to the wall of sound? No, no, you're right. It changes. I actually, I'll get to it, but I I would argue that the meaning of this song changes throughout the song. Right, yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem to have a lot of, I mean, it's about, you know, the wall of sound. It would, could be like the power of rock and roll. Obviously, it's, it's an homage to the concept of Phil Spector's wall of sound. You know what I mean? But I don't, uh, again, I really, I like the song. I just don't know what it's about. Like it, it just feels like one of those like self-affirming, you know, rock and roll is going to save you kind of songs, but it doesn't. Um, and I, and I, I, I really like the riff. I mean, the riff sounds very Zeppelin-esque, but I, I like the song all the way around. Andrew? Um, I absolutely love this riff too. I think what, what for me is interesting about it is that this is, um, it's also, it's a Paul Stanley written song that Gene sings. I think so that, that gives, you know, that, that kind of makes me think of, you know, like the blend that they got in or the creative blend that they got in God of Thunder that Bob Ezra found Mm -hmm. uh, discovered. But what I really like about this riff is that it sounds like it's um, it's it's kind of this very very um, spidery almost like stonery riff, which is a really really unusual thing to say for a Kiss riff, but it really stands out, and I feel like um, it's it's very it's very unique within within the Kiss universe, and that for me makes it very very compelling. Um, I just I, I just think it just every time. Um, it circles back to that descending riff. It just grabs you and it holds you and, 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 and it holds you while it plays through. And that's the mark of a great riff where you just really look forward to it. And then just love the fact that it grabs you every time. And um, as far, um, and I have no idea about the lyrics. Um, I mean, I know there's the Phil Spector wall of sound. And then although Kiss have never, ever, ever been fans of the Grateful Dead and have been very public about that, the Grateful Dead had a literal wall of sound in 1974. If you Google Grateful Dead wall of sound, the biggest wall of amplifiers you have ever seen in your life that's real will come up. Hmm. And I'm thinking that Mm -hmm. I was thinking that um, 
you could have done when they did do this live because it did turn come up on the monster tour. They could have just had used the projection screens behind them to just have a literal wall of amplifiers, and that would have looked absolutely fantastic. And they could have had the screens like vibrating as if the, the speakers were vibrating. So I just figure the song's about volume. Mm. Works for me. Mike, I agree, Andrew, for sure. Having seen them in 1979, you know, it didn't look like a wall of sound, but it sure sounded like a wall of sound. It was overwhelming in terms of volume. <laughs> so by all means, and if I'm you're not write, jealous that you got to see that, God damn it. I, I wish I could see it, it, it at this age for crying out loud, but you know, that'll never happen. But either way, you know, whatever is behind the meaning of the song, I don't know. But at the same time, when I look at the record and say, well, okay, wall of sound, what's that about? I hope it's about this. And I hope that's what it is. Um, but also too, again, this is also an album of um, influences. The verse is very uh, Beatles, Helter Skelterish in a way, right? Yes, it is. Yes, in fact, they that was something that they were consciously trying to mimic when they when they were saying what kind of verse should the song have. Gene specifically cited Helter Skelter. He, he said, "I want to do something like that, where there's that uh, you know descending single line um, on the guitar, and that's that's what they were consciously aping." Yeah, and also too, when it comes to the heavier riff, which is really cool too, it's almost like a Aerosmith "Love and Elevator" kind of riff as well. You know, that kind of da 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 da. You know, it again. You know, it 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 works as a song. Period. Um, but also, I, I think in terms of the guitar solo, this is where you know Tommy goes into like outside of the Ace and outside of the the Bruce Kulick stuff. He starts playing more like you know Jimmy Page type licks in the mm -hmm. solo. You know, which again. This sounds like an album where they were gelling as a band and where it could have gone from here would have been interesting to see. You know, it, it, it wasn't like we need to sound like Kiss of 1977. We need to sound like Kiss of this era and this is what it is and where it's going to go from there. We never really got to see. So good to know that that was a template. They, they really could have, you know, there could have been more. As that, you know, that band as a whole in a way. But, you know, good song, you know, either way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think lyrically the song starts out especially vague, uh, talking about the rolling thunder and all, all this kind of stuff. But I, I do think once you get to the pre-chorus, um, when they're talking about uh, soldiers going into battle and the battle never ends and the soldiers never die and you got to you know look them in the eye. I mean, going on tour for for especially a band like Kiss is kind of like going to war. You know, and they they have to prove themselves every night. They have this legend to live up to. And I think that that is kind of what they're talking about, um, at least up until that point. Then once you get to the next verse, I think they're kind of talking about the wall of sound as a metaphor for life itself, right? It is this big, powerful thing that hits you and knocks you down. And, you know, it's it's they're talking about the capacity to overcome Gene and Paul are sort of the ultimate survivors. It's that whole Jewish work ethic, you know, of, of resilience no matter what. We will find a way. You know, if the entire world shatters, we will pick up the pieces and find a way to carry on. And I think that is what they're talking about. Song number three, Freak. Uh, sounds like the camper van Beethoven slash status quo song, uh, Matt Stick Men. It's got some nice, um, I mean, it's, it's um, got some really, actually some pretty cool bass fills in it. And I mean, I, I like it because I mean, I, I like, 
I mean, it's, it's funny to think of these guys settled in their lives, you know, having married and all that kind of stuff, still describing themselves as freaks. You know what I mean? I mean, it's obviously a song for the fans, you know, the ones that feel like the outcasts. And I'm always a sucker for a song about, you know, the outcast or whatever. Well, I just, it's funny. I just read, there was an article in today's paper where they were saying, who is the most hated band by classic rock fans? And Kiss won that without contest. 25% of classic rock fans absolutely hate Kiss. So I don't think that, uh, that you know, that the idea of them being outcasts and loners and misfits, even at this advanced age in their career, was necessarily completely foreign to them. Okay, yeah, well... Um... Yeah, so I, I like it. I mean, I like the um, the chorus is catchy. You know what I mean? I found myself humming it. So yeah, it's a good. It's actually a very good song. the The riff in the beginning is kind of a different Kiss riff. I don't hear them sort of write riffs like that. Um, you know, the down, down, the down, the down. You know what I mean? It's almost got almost a little informed by grunge or by, you know, post punk, which is all informed by '60s rock anyway. So. Yeah, it's kind of similar to Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that, but it's definitely, what it sounds like is if you listen to that Pictures of Matchstick Men, uh -huh. Status Quo, which is then covered by Camper Van Beethoven, which is actually not covered by Camper Van Beethoven. I think it's covered by the guy who was in Camper Van Beethoven's next band, but whatever, I don't know. At any rate, um, it definitely sounds like that. But again, the, all that stuff is informed from 60s rock anyway, 60s, 70s, hard rock, you know, so. Right. Well, it smells like Teen Spirit. Kurt yeah. Cobain just stole the riff from Godzilla by Blister Colt and right. slowed it yeah, down. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So I like it. I, I don't have anything uh, against the song. I, I actually, yeah. I mean, it's, it stands up. I'm actually, to be perfectly honest, I am surprised that I'm this far into the album and still liking all the songs and not want you know what I mean? Like totally like digging it, like it that kind of stuff. Andrew? Yeah, I think, um, I, I, I think the, the, the late sixties vibe, I think is, is absolutely spot on. And I think, you know, this album, a big part of it is, you know, they were, um, they were basically, it, it felt like what they were doing is taking, essentially lifting things from their influences during the verse and then just being total kiss during the choruses. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so, and you've got that, you know, you, you have Led Zeppelin or Helter Skelter with wall of sound. And in this one, um, I wasn't necessarily thinking of, of a particular song in particular, other than, I guess, um, that song signs, you know, um, and then I was, thinking, uh, um, or like, you know, like for what it's worth was another one, but I, it was sort of that late sixties, I've got to be me kind of, like feel good. It's like a protest song, but it's an affirmational, like a self-affirmation protest as opposed to a political sort of protest, which Kiss always avoided. But I felt like it was more the overall feel of that like late 60s self-affirmation, self-protest. Um, and, you know, in that way it works. It's not one of my more favorite songs on the record, but I know what they were going for and they definitely got it. Mike? Yeah, I, I, you know, again, late 60s, definitely the intro is very uh, Hendrix, Foxy Lady with the feedback and the, you know, intro. And uh, anyway, at first, too, when I was listening to the song again, I was thinking like, well, you know, is it about, you know, kids of today or is it really about kids of, of yesterday? Because, you know, when you think about, you know, yeah, I got streaks in my hair. Well, you look back to Jimi Hendrix and, you know, Tommy Bolin and Joe Perry and Keith Richards and even Paul Stanley in 1976. That kind of helped me 
appreciate the song even more so. Um, you know, and, and cool about the, the fact that, you know, when they ask me, I say, yeah, I'm a freak. You know, that's an affirmation. That's cool. Because yeah. <laughs> it's not easy to be a freak and, and, and deal with that, you know? Are you going to stand your ground? You're going to be able to, you know, defend yourself against that. You know, debatable, you know? Um, but, you know, but also, too, I think the bridge is cool. It's a, a cool sort of laid back kind of way into, you know, leading into the solo and, and back into the chorus again. Um, but also too, like I want to hear the you know the, the you know sort of breakdown when they go through the pledge of allegiance, you know you know to the state of you know independence. It reminds me of um, the Winger album. Uh, I think it was called a uh, Pull. Hmm. Where the, there's a song down incognito where it's like this kind of breakdown where it sounds similar to that. So you know again, I listen to all kinds of music, and I'm not trying to say that they were influenced by Winger. You know, which not that you know, being influenced by Winger is a bad thing, but there's a similarity there in my opinion but overall i think it, it's cool that you know they can make a song that would be of the era of now but it could it, if you look back it's it comes from experience yeah there's a truth to it for sure yeah um i i love this song it's probably my favorite song on the record i wish that they would play this live i wish that it had been the single um supposedly paul stanley wrote this song originally for lady gaga and she didn't cover it <laughs> Um, so I don't know if that's a reason why they, you know, kind of gave it short thrift on the live front, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's great. Um, back to the stone age. Step forward MC5 influence. Right there. <laughs> Honestly, that's the funny. I consider this the most grungy of the songs on here. It has the most sort of like queens of the stone age kind of vibe to it the most pose you know that one this we were past grunge at this point but sort of that uh new metal new heavy metal sound of like queens of the stone age and that kind of stuff it even has a very sort of the scream at the beginning is a very sort of uh you know ah, i'm trying to think like what what band what i can compare that to i want to say like sort of grunge bands but it's not like so, and I keep coming back to Queens of the Stone Age, but there were other bands like the the Vines and all those, <laughs> the Hives and all those bands that sort of had that like, you know, um, you know, running off the rails, fast rock and roll type vibe or whatever. Well, that's, I mean, and all those bands will trace back to MC5. Yeah, 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 agree. Uh, so yeah, so, so it is an MC5 uh, thing, but it's... Um, and the the uh, the dumbest part is the I, I mean, but it is a clever song because it's you know again it's not a this this album has a lot of like non cliched songs you know this title back to the Stone Age is actually kind of clever and you know it fits Gene's personality and it's kind of a funny song although when he does do that I like it that's kind of dumb but other than that again. I'm four songs in, I'm, I'm liking them all. You know, they're all good songs. So I definitely dig this one. Andrew? Yeah, this is, um, I, I, I really enjoy this one. Again, it just, this is just the total Detroit shock rock thing. It was the two bands we've already mentioned. Plus there was, you know, Alice Cooper was up and running. Um, but the other thing that I liked about this is that I, I view the lyrics as Gene sort of poking fun at himself which is almost feels like sort of almost like a first within the context of an actual song on a kiss record, because he can actually say during interviews and we've all heard them where he's like, look at us, we are just ridiculous. Come on, you know? Um, but for him, but you know, for him to, 
but he, you know, he's been called a Neanderthal by more than one person over the space of his career and so on and so forth. And I just thought this was actually, um, it was, it was for him to be able to do something that was sort of, um, sort of self-effacing or self-deprecating within the context of this kind of shock rock, prototypical shock rock song. Um, I thought it all worked very well. Mike? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the, you know, the, the obvious uh, MC5, you know, uh, kick out the jams reference to the riff in the, in, in the beginning of the song, which, you know, fine, you know, so be it. But also, too, you know, if you're going to say, you know, there were terms thrown around, like when these, these guys were, you know, in their later years in the 70s, like, it's, it, are you guys like dinosaur rock? Are you, you know, you know, compared to like progressive rock in the, in the late 70s, you know? It takes a lot of balls to say I'm going back to the Stone Age, back where I belong, you know, and 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 say if you don't like it, then so be it, you know. And this is what we're doing, and if it works, you great. You're on the same team, we're on the same page, and that's it, you know. I, I, to me, that I, I buy into the song in that regard for sure. Okay, yeah. So back to the Stone Age that is also a science fiction novel written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I think lyrically at the beginning when he talks about in the beginning there was darkness and there was light at the dawn of creation there was fear in the dead of night i can't help but think about in gene's book when he talks about when his father abandoned him in israel and his mother had to work nights and he was five years old and he woke up by himself alone and was terrified and realized that he was completely on his own and that if he was hungry, he had to feed himself. If he was scared, there was nobody there to help him, you know? And I, I kind of feel like that that's a reference to that feeling that he had in the beginning of his life. Um, but also for a man who has lived his life in the 70s and the 80s as a sexually promiscuous libertine, um, who now finds himself in the age of political correctness, I would imagine that he does feel like a man who is living out of time, right? And uh, so I think that there's a kernel of truth to that, that song, the feeling that comes across in this song. And, you know, it's interesting, the line, keep a fire burning deep inside, that's almost a reference to a song that he did on the BK3 solo album, I want to say it was. Um, there's, there's a song, I forget the name of the song, but there's definitely one where he, that he co-wrote with Bruce, where he talks about that as well. So shout mercy. The only thing I have in my, this is where I start to sort of lose interest. It's not a bad song. I mean, it's a good riff. I like the sort of the, again, I'm going from a bass player point of view. And this is an album that Gene did not phone it in on. Like he actually, I'm afraid to look it up on where, who played on what, because I don't want to be disappointed. It's all Gene. It's all Gene. Yeah, it's all Gene. <laughs> like it's actually really decent bass playing. Uh, there's some really cool little, you know, the bass is super deep and distorted and it's got these cool little fills in it. The only thing I don't like is when they say like, when Paul goes, get this party started. And I'm like, Oh, come on. You know, he's thrown back to uh, whatever, but you know, I mean, if anybody's allowed to, rest on their laurels it's him so but i am starting yeah you know what i mean there's not much to it i didn't really like it that much i mean that's not true no i liked it i just didn't love it didn't you know okay really me. andrew 
this is actually like in 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 contrast this is actually my favorite song on the entire record um this for me is like somebody woke up that morning when they were writing and put on live at leeds by the who and just played it really really loud because this um you know the the intro and the and the verses is total late 60s who you have drum fills all over the place you have these really really powerful forward guitar riffs and you essentially have gene as the bass as kind of like doing the john entwistle thing as the anchor instrument holding all of this down um while stanley wails over the top of it and it's it is just for me it is just total early maximum r&b who with a complete kiss chorus and um for me, it, it absolutely works. I think if they had written this song when Eric Carr was still alive and in the band, he would have wanted him to play it every night. I, 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 you know, I'm not a drummer, but I can't imagine this song would be anything other than a tremendous pleasure to play with all of the, the, the fills that are happening. And uh, it just, um, this is actually like, when I, when I go back and I was looking at, you know, which songs I've played on this record, this one is far and away the most. And it's, um, yeah. It just, this is um, two thumbs up from me. I absolutely love this. Wow. One. I feel like I need to go back and listen to it again. No, it's all good. I mean, it's just, this is, um, this, I mean, if we all agreed on everything, it would be a really boring True. podcast. In a boring world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Mike? Yeah, for sure. Live at Leeds. But I would also add uh, to you know, bolster uh, Andrew's point. Um, I would also sound similar to uh, Humble Pie Live at the Fillmore. It sounds like, you know, I don't need no doctor in a way, you know, the riff is very of that era and it's of that, you know, same thing like live recording, you know, but for sure, there's like a similarity between like in the British bands and there's a British band influence on this song. And I would say for sure, um, you know, who and humble pie and no wonder they're, they're wearing their, their, their influences on their sleeve. So who else to do that other than kiss? To me, this song is about the transcendent joy of casual, no strings attached sex with strangers you've just met as a lifestyle. And Paul knows of what he, he sings. So, you know. Now for the second single, Long Way Down. It's a good, it's a good Zeppelin riff. Um, I like it, it's, it's catchy, it's a strong song. I, you know, th this is one where um, I think th this is one of one of um, this is let's see um, this is Paul and Tommy as a co-write and I'd be interested to see who came up with what because I absolutely I love the verse and I love the chorus but the pre-chorus for me feels like it doesn't necessarily fit but um, between the verse and the chorus it's just wonderfully I, I love I, I, I love how it's constructed and I love the way the vocal just like rides with everything I think this is just um, this feels like classic Paul Stanley songcraft with strong contributions from Tommy Thayer. And I think it, it slots in um, really, really nicely. I, I had a hard time trying to figure out exactly what band someone might have been listening to in the morning before they came to the studio, but it definitely has that kind of early to mid seventies sort of slightly harder rock possible radio single vibe to it. And in that way, I feel that you know, the song succeeds. Uh, I might be able to answer Andrew's question about uh, where that song came from. It sounds to me like the Jeff Beck group uh, version of Shapes of Things, which is a Yardbirds tune, right? Right? Yeah. Bingo. It's, That's uh, what it is. Which uh, is a great riff. <laughs> anyway. 
Detective Gavin. It also sounds like something on Led Zeppelin three, though, too. Yeah, it sounds like Led Zeppelin to me. Like out of the tiles, like um, it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, out of yeah, the, my, I think it is out of the tiles. Tiles. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. obviously Jimmy Page played with Jeff Beck and the Arbird, so um, you know. But so did you know? If you go to you know again to Andrew, you know Diamond Rio, there are songs on the Diamond Rio records from you know that, that sound like the Arbirds as well. So you know everybody's susceptible to be influenced by, you know, the Arbors and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. Uh, but either way, you know, the introverse sounds like, you know, her uh, shape of things, but also too, you mentioned the pre-chorus. The thing that I like about the pre-chorus is some, some really great guitar harmonies in the pre-chorus that, that sort of stand out to me, you know, which make a song that might not be the strongest song on the album. It kind of both, it, it reinforces the fact that you, know, you can, you can have a mediocre song and, and, and support with other things like a, a cool pre-chorus but it, it, to me it, it's not the strongest you know track on, on on the album you know it could have been better but you know the things i like about it are the, you know the pre-chorus and the fact that it's a, a harken back to you know, their influences again which is probably a theme to this record overall so this is kind of an unusual kiss song lyrically because they're they're not really singing it from the first person or they are but it's actually not mm -hmm. about them Right. It's kind of written from the perspective of a friend whose friend has found out that his lover is cheating on him and he's heartbroken and suicidal. And his friend is telling him he needs to reconsider those suicidal thoughts, which is a pretty dark place for a kiss song to go. And I think it's it's interesting that Paul went there. Like, I, I feel like there there is a missing part of this song where Paul needs to say something beyond the fact of don't kill yourself because you, you will regret that impulse. Like, you know, it almost needs that, that thing of everybody's got a reason to live, you know, or, you know, life will go on something just to, to kind of take you over that hill and, and, and to get it back into positivity. But nonetheless, I think it's, I think it's a fairly strong song. So, eat your heart out. Garbage. <laughs> no, seriously, it's the worst. It's garbage. I can't, I, that opening, starting with the opening, like, thing, it's flaming garbage. I hate it. I hate it. Sorry, that was it. That is my literal reaction to it. That ridiculous opening and everything about this song just makes me hate it. Moving on. Um... This okay. Um, <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't one of my more favorite songs on the record. But what I did appreciate about it is that they were. I, I think they had a really good time doing the vocals for this song. I mean, the the the, the, the clowning around at the beginning is just a clear cop from uh, Thirty Days in the Hole by Humble Pie. Um, I mean, there's even I mean to the point where you can hear like banging and talking and stuff like that. But so I think there, there was there was definitely that influence. But you go back a little further than that. I felt like there was a little bit of, you know, somebody probably listened to the Doobie Brothers in, in the morning before they came to the studio. And then chances are, if they were doing that, someone may have also been listening to some Motown because that's who the Doobie Brothers got their whole approach from. And overall, I think this was more that the, the band have always been suckers for a pop song with big vocals, and they've been pretty open about that. And I think this was their kind of chance to have some fun with it. And even if I'm not as much a big a fan of the song, I at least enjoyed the fact that you can hear they're having a good time, at least recording the vocals. Mike? Yeah, I, I, you know, my issue with the song is, you know, 
is it you're going to eat your heart out or you know i'm going to eat your heart out it, it seemed like a is there a theme to this song but also do for sure there's definitely the uh, third is in the whole uh reference to to the intro and you know it you know a hot mess is what i need is that really that interesting of a subject matter i don't think so you know it, it's like john said it's 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 a throwaway track in a way you know lyrically well i i think it's a pay on to giving oral sex to women right it's not exactly a double entendre i'm not even sure that there's a word in the english language for what kind of it's more like a entendre 1.5 because you know he's he clearly he means you know i want to eat you out not eat your heart out but on behalf of women everywhere i would just like to say <laughs> that they probably appreciate the sentiment so the devil is me <laughs> I love this song. That riff is killer. It's got that like hammer on thing. I like that chorus with a woke up in a cold sweat and the Lord decreed the devil is me. Again, I'm always fascinated by his like um, Judeo-Christian references because he is a Jew and yet everything in this song tends to be a Christian reference. Um, and then, but uh, something that does also stand out to me is the solo sounds like the solo from Whole Lot of Love that sort of like everything breaks down and sort of goes a little bit off kilter or whatever. Um, but it's a, it's a, I love this song. It's a great song. I love how it goes. Andrew? Yeah, this is, um, it's, 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 it's very good and it's insistent. I also, I like the riff. I felt like there was a little bit of, um, um, at least a little bit of a nod to almost human in there in a couple places. And also what I did like about the lyrics overall is that these are a little more introspective than what you would have seen from Simmons earlier in his career. And um, I think that's kind of, it's interesting, to, it's interesting to see that. And I think it, uh, but overall, this is one that, uh, this is one that works. It, it falls into the demon persona in a way. And I think, you know, it works. Overall, musically, it's a, it's a well-written song, and you know, lyrically, it, it supports that persona. So, it's one of the stronger Gene songs on the record. I like it. I you know, lyrically, he's kind of returning to the theme that he's touched on in um, "Unholy" and "Hate." You know, the idea that if you blame your bad actions for external forces, the, the, i.e., the devil made me do it, you are essentially denying responsibility for your own actions and precluding the possibility that you can ever really improve yourself. Um, it contains my favorite line I fought myself to be set free, right? Which is a cool line, especially, you know, I think you get to a certain point in life where you realize that the only people you can change are yourselves. And so a line like that, I fought myself to be set free, um, is a great line. And, you know, I also like the fact that he plays upon the whole idea of Robert Johnson going down to the crossroads, selling your soul with, uh, I held a page I could not read, drew up my blood and signed it. Um, so it's it's kind of nice that he has that nod to the archetypical um, sold your soul to the devil to make it in the music business. Next up, Tommy Thayer's song, Out of This World. 
the uh this song is overshadowed for me by the fact that it's them trying to make him ace or it's you know what i mean because of the whole spaceman riff so i really couldn't actually enjoy it because it felt really weird you know what i mean it felt like why were they making a song about him riding rockets and so forth and this is obviously sort of a reference to ace fraley and probably most fans of kiss are not going to fall for it you know what i mean and that kind of stuff so it didn't really didn't do much for me andrew oh man john i'm sorry to hear that because <laughs> I, I absolutely love this oh, song really? i think this is a I do, yeah, because this is, um, I mean, this is this is a, a sole Tommy Thayer co-write, and I think his directive was write a song within the Spaceman persona, and so the lyrics were, I, I think, were probably crafted after the fact to fit that, but um, the actual music bed is fantastic. I think this, along with When Lightning Strikes, I mean, these are, these are his two signature songs, and I could have easily seen this one stick around in the set past the Monster Tour, because it was one of the, it was one of the three songs from this record that actually stuck throughout um, that, that was the plate that made it to the live set. Um, and I, I really enjoy the energy of this. And I, 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 I get it that it was written to, to fit the spaceman persona, you know, and there, and there's going to be forever the ongoing debate of, you know, should Tommy and Eric have been given their own kiss personas as opposed to being the cat man and the spaceman, but that's a, an entirely different podcast but i think that within the constraints of what he was able to do i think this is an absolutely fantastic song and even if the lyrics are um or something that bump up that, that kind of rub the wrong way because they're obviously you know spaceman themed the actual music bed is superb and i think it's a fantastic tommy thayer song yeah, I mean, other than the obvious, you know, it sounds like, you know, Mountain, uh, Mississippi Queen, you know, with the cowbell and the, and the chunky kind of riff in, 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 in the verse, you know, but either way, you know, it's cool that they let a, guy, a new guy in the band write a song and put it on the album and it is what it is, you know, that, that shows support, you know, from you know, way back, you know, the easiest thing would have been to say, no, we're going to write the songs and you know, you're not going to have a, you know, a shot at doing a new song on the record. So good for them for being like a team player approach. Um, and, but also too, from the general population point of view, you know, everybody that, you know, goes to see Kiss, they might not know that it's not Ace Frehley on stage when they go to see Kiss. And maybe they don't care if it's not Ace Frehley, you know, personally, I, I care, but you know, that my opinion is of the minority. So if you're going to have a guy in the band, bring him in as a full member and let him do what he's got to do. You know, write a song, be a, be a part of the band, and we'll put that on the record. And if you get a chance to play that live, then so be it. You know, support support everybody as a band. And I think this, this is where they were going with this record. And again, they didn't really fully develop it after this this point, which is kind of a shame in a way. But, you know, yes, it's, it's of the Spaceman vibe. You would expect that. Is it a ripoff or is it something of just, you know, a theme that they're sort of playing on, debatable? From your point of view i mean i love the song i understand why people have a problem with the you know kind of adapting the spaceman persona but at the same time i think he's talking about being an alien in the sense of being alienated like you know the the, the whole concept that you're so weird you're never going to find a significant other and whatnot and there's kind of a raw honesty there i remember I played this album for my mother when she was still alive. And her comment about the album overall was, you know, she liked it, but she said, there's a lot of pain 
there's a lot of pain in these songs, you know? And I, I think that, um, that that's true. I, this is probably my favorite Tommy Thayer solo. And so much so that I wish that it was extended just a little bit more, like another, I don't know, four, eight bars. Cause I think it could really be a showcase for him, but he does something on here where he, he pre does some pre bends and then releases them down. And it's a really cool guitar part. And it's completely original and unlike anything like another Kiss guitar player has ever done. And I, I listen to that and I go, wow, I want to hear more cool stuff from, from Tommy like that. So I, I agree. I wish that they would have had him play this song instead of Shock Me, because I think it, you know, it it's more appropriate. Um, but anyhow, all for the love of rock and roll. Okay, so did I screw this up in my notes? Because this also has, um, this has a cowbell in it, right? It's all. For uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Because this is this is the funniest thing. Because I was just playing it, and Emily walked by, and she goes, "Cowbell! It's got cowbell. This is surely a hit." And I was saying, "Well, this is the one of the most played songs on the album. It's, if you look at iTunes, it's got the little star by it." Um, and so I guess that uh, that makes it sort of a hit, for lack of a better word. You know, it's one of the ones that are played more frequently than the rest of the stuff on the album. Um, so Emily liked it for the cowbell, and I liked it there for the cowbell. But it sounds to me like one of their 80s songs where they have sort of like a, it. It sounds like it would be a soundtrack to a teen movie. Um, the lyrics I find a little bit cliched. You know what I mean? Like, why not just do a cover of um, Turn the Page or something like that? You know what I mean? But um, I like it, but it I it just feels a little cliched. You know what I mean? It just doesn't feel, it doesn't stand up as like something particularly original. Andrew? I think Paul Stanley writes a great song for Peter Chris to sing. I feel like this was sort of, you know, this was sort of a, you know, um, I actually, it's it's catchy. And I feel like this is something that, they could have easily written and given to Peter for one of those late seventies kiss records. Um, and the fact that it follows the so-called like spaceman song makes me kind of think that even a little bit more, but I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's got a nice melody to it. Um, I think it, it, it fits in where it sits on the record. And um, so, but it's, um, it, it's sort of just, I think it does, it, it does what they set out to do. And I think it's, um, it, it occupies that sort of drummers, you know, that, that niche that, that the, 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 you know, was first carved out by the Peters, by the songs with the Peter vocals in the seventies. Yeah. I think, you know, again, you know, stemming from the uh, sonic boom approach, you know, if you're going to write a song that, you know, is of the era of the classic kiss era, then, you know, for sure. This, this song works on that level. It, you know, also lyrically, it reminds me of, uh, you know, you know, hotter than hell. Like, you know, she showed me her wedding band, you know, and Eric is saying like, you know, <laughs> I'm single tonight, you know? So it, it's like the same kind of concept, you know, it works. Is it as good, you know, debatable? I don't know, you know, it's up to you. Um, but I think John, you mentioned that uh, there was a Doobie Brothers influence on a previous song. If you guys check out the song, uh, Sweet Maxine from Doobie Brothers, there's a, uh, a vibe to the chorus, like she knows how to rock and roll, da-da-da, in, in, in the Doobie Brothers song. It's, it, I'm not saying like kids sitting around listening to Doobie Brothers, but if you listen to that song, you'll hear this song. 
in a way, you know, and again, I'm always the guy saying, gee, that's a great song. However, it sounds like the Doobie Brothers, you know, but, you know, check it out. It's a, a curiosity point. I think you, you might see a similarity. Mike, chances are you're probably right. Because I, I think if I remember seeing an interview with somebody around the time of this, this record came out and I was looking for it and couldn't find it. I feel like somebody, and it might've even been an interview with Tommy where they were saying, we were all consciously like picking out record, our favorite records that we liked at home and playing them in the morning before we got to the studio. Um, and that was, and they were very open about that and were very open about that being part of the writing and the riff process. So given that, it, given that the Doobie Brothers came up three songs ago, you're probably spot on. So, okay, there's a song called All for the Love of Rock and Roll done by a band called The Tough Darts in 1977-1978. And this song is not a complete ripoff of that song, but lyrically, musically, I would say it would have been impossible for them to have written this song without having at least possibly unconsciously heard that song because there are a lot of parallels. If you go to YouTube, listen to it, you'll go, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's a little close, isn't it? All right. Um, but ultimately, does it matter? Good composers borrow, great composers steal. Um, they didn't get sued. So more power to them. Um, I kind of like the fact that, there, that there's a, an honesty about this song too. I mean, you know, talking about playing shows, getting paid 50 bucks, um, you know, the, the whole thing. I mean, they're not overly glamorizing the, the experience of rock and roll groupies. I mean, there's a married woman telling you, hey, I'm single tonight. It's like, ooh, yeah, great. You know, <laughs> so, you know, I, again, I, I, I admire the... Uh, the the honesty regardless of whether the song is musically completely original so take me down below this starts with a nautical themed double entendre goes to a mechanical elevator themed double entendre and then finishes with another nautical themed well, I think it's entendre. an airplane. It finishes so it's, with an airplane entendre, right? I mean, <laughs> sorry, then it goes, no. And then finally, I was saying just in the first verse, then it goes to the airplane one. So I would have to say that it's several travel double entendres. Um, so at first I was like, this song is ridiculous. And then I was like, no, man, they kept coming up with, you know, clever ways of doing, <laughs> doing you know, making entendres towards sex. I almost like the idea that it's constantly entendres about um, travel, even if one travel is just simply taking an elevator. So it's it's a goofy song. I don't I don't love it or hate it. It's it's you know it's good, but not great. I have a good time with this one. For me, this is um, step forward '70s era AC/DC and be counted because that opening riff and the verse is entirely something that could have been found on any of the first four ACDC records, the ones with Bon Scott. Um, and not only that, I'll get like the biggest lyrical compliment I can throw on the record is those first two verses, the ones that Gene sings, Bon, bon Scott could have written and sung those. He just nailed whoever was, if they were trying to do like, okay, this is how Bon Scott would have done it. They absolutely nailed it. And when it switches over to Paul's vocals, 
everything I kept thinking of was, okay, this is Paul like basically doing, taking the love and love and an elevator theme and Steven Tyler's kind of lyric themes and just completely running with it. And it more or less works. But for me, the, um, like the, over, and then there, you know, and it's the classic kiss chorus after, you know, after each verse, but I love the, the old ACDC approach and like what is probably like, I looked at it as a nod to Bon Scott. And I mean, these guys took the young ACDC out on tour. And I thought this was a fun little surprise to Barry, you know, in the 11th track on the record. So thumbs up from me. Yeah, I would bolster Andrew's point about the ACDC theme. It's definitely uh, the intro is uh, very ACDC dirty deeds under cheap right you know but it works you know yes but at, at the same time too they're revisiting themes in this record is lyrically you know and dave you could tell me or, or not is this just like a, a revisiting of like the nothing to lose you know theme you know you got nothing to lose you know <laughs> take me down below you tell me um yeah so so i mean i like the song it's a fun kind of driving song i mean it's silly it's fun i mean the bragging about their various sexual escapades um i like the fact that they reference the cruise because by this time they were doing the, the kiss cruises to me it's sort of the sister song to eat your heart out because if you think about it eat your heart out being a song to giving oral sex the title take me down below below blow is kind of a again entendre and a half um you know pay on to receiving oral sex and um i the only thing about this song that i i wish that it was a little bit more evenly split like there could have been a fourth verse with paul so that it was you know more give and take between gene and paul i actually know a girl that rode an elevator with paul and um <laughs> they didn't end up doing the thing he just said hi to her and she said hi back but anyhow it's a fun song anyhow um last chance i like the cool the cool bass riff at the end i like i mean at the beginning sorry uh nice and distorted i dig the lyrical content it's you know sort of another self-affirmation like this is going to be our last chance i kept hearkening back to um we're coming out by the replacements which is sort of an anti last chance song it's like they, they in the in the song they keep saying last chance get it all on last chance to throw it all away last chance which i sort of was like kiss would never write a song like that this is about you know we have to get our last chance uh to make something work so it's kind of interesting that it made me think of that by the replacements and again i like the uh i like that cool little bass riff at the beginning I think this is this is like for me like your typically solid Kiss album closer. Um, I like the overall feel. It has a sort of like early Kiss album feel to it, at least as far as the music bed goes. And in particular, I liked like the nice screaming Ace style solo from Tommy in the middle. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's cool. That it's a it's a co-write between Gene and, and uh, uh, you know Paul and Tommy. It's a you know the band approach, and for sure, it's a great closer. And I agree with Andrew. It's definitely a, a great solo as well. You know, but it works. But like even like lyrically, it works. Like you know, the end of the album, like you know, the last you know the last chance. You know, <laughs> there's like is it, there's a hopeful thing. You know, are you gonna you know, where are you gonna go from there? It's it's a great way to close a, a record lyrically as well. So. Well, now you guys keep saying it's the closer. There is one more song. I don't know if it's on the versions that you guys heard. The bonus track right here, right now, which is on the Apple iTunes, but not on Spotify currently. 
Yeah, it was. It looks like it was on what was called the tour version of the record. So I'm guessing must have been the physical product sold at shows, and it's on iTunes. But when it's marketed as a bonus track, like I tend not to consider it part of the the record proper. Um, um, I, I kind of think of it in terms of like the like you know like the, the added song that they would have for Japanese versions, which in this case actually was a live one. But um, when it's when it comes out as a bonus track, like you know I'll talk about it, but it, uh, but like to a certain extent, if it wasn't part of the original album, then it's, you know, it's sort of, then for me, Last Chance is the closer. Well, for me, I like Last Chance. I mean, it's kind of an exhortation to get out there and take chances outside of your bubble, outside of your comfort zone and, you know, embrace life. And I, I like some of the lyrics, you know, you heard you'll be sorry, but you know that they lied is kind of callback to uh, they tried to tell you that the world was rough, but they never rocked it hard enough from Little Caesar. But to me, the song is kind of incomplete. It's it's kind of like the A part of the thought that is completed in right here, right now, which, you know, is is really I think it's a shame that they left it off some versions of the album, because I think it's a really strong song. And I think that that Last Chance ties in directly to it. It's almost like they're two parts of the same song. Yeah, I have that on my iTunes version. Okay, so right here, right now. Again, nice driving song. I That's funny that you said that I sort of felt like it was connected. and um, But there's nothing that, I mean, it's a good, good song, you know, good, solid song. But nothing super special about it that stands out. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, there, there is for me, you know, it, it for me was obviously was reminiscent of King of the Nighttime World during the intro and to an extent during the chorus. Definitely the rolling drum parts. Yeah, yeah. And the core, I, I like the chorus, very 80s kiss, but with a nod to King of the Nighttime World in there. But the verse, the verses in this one just doesn't do it for me. Um, I do like, the, the, you know, the guitar solo jives nicely with, with the intro and the chorus. But for me, it's... I don't like this song as good as any of the uh, as the twelve that actually made the record. I feel like it doesn't quite fit, even even though technically, you know, I I, I don't know it. It feels like it's sort of like the thirteenth wheel, and it's but you know, um, it's the song that, that for me it's like it's good enough to be the bonus track. But I can I, I can when I listen to it, I can feel why it didn't make the final cut of twelve. A final cut of twelve. Mike, have you heard the song? Yes, I have heard the song, but also too, I agree with everybody else in a way that like, if it was really like the strongest song that, that was meant to be, then it would have been included on the, on the original release, you know, and if it's a, it's a B-side or a bonus track, then, you know, it was an obligation, like we have to, we can't fit enough songs on the record and, and that's what it is and this will be, you know, on some other version of it, you know, if you really feel strongly about a song, it's going to be on the album, you know, but at the same time too, look at the Fleetwood Mac Silver Springs, right, you know, that was a great song this should have been on rumors you know <laughs> and and the politics in the band were you know that, that no that song's too long it's not gonna be on the record you know if you feel that strongly about a song then you got to buck up and get it on the record otherwise you know it becomes a bonus track or a b-side you know i mean Fleetwood Mac had a few problems. That they did, yeah. You know, but I'm not saying. <laughs> Having said that, rumors came out just fine. As it was. That is it, yeah. <laughs> but either way, you know, you know, I, I would say that Silver Swings is probably a better song than this song. You know, if you had to compare the two, but you know, that's just me. Well, there's Led Zeppelin's "Hey, Hey, What Can I Do?" too, right? That somehow never managed to land that's, on an album. That, okay. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I love this song. To me, like that. You're right. They should have fought for it to be on there. You know. Um, 
and, and you know, the idea right here, right now, I mean, Paul's exhortation to live in the moment, to live in the now, which he's been talking about since at least lick it up. It's only right now. Um, I, you know, trying to get people to embrace life with gusto. Um, I like the basketball metaphor, um, you know, take the ball and go with it or whatever it is. Um, the only thing about this song that, that kind of bothers me is the bridge doesn't feel completely thought out when they talk about um, doing, you know, whatever's right for you. Uh, there's a better way to say that because that makes it sound like whatever you're doing in your life is random, you know, and, and not what, you know, you, you finding your true purpose in life. And when he says, is anybody ready to fight for you? And, and they say, hell yeah, you're on your own. Right, yeah, well, then it yeah. should be hell no, you're on your own. But, you know, I mean, they're, they're trying to make a point about, you know, the fact that in, in some ways you are on your own, in some ways you're never truly alone. But there's, again, there's a better way to get there. Mm-hmm. I really like the extended guitar uh, harmonies in the, in the closing solo, though. I mean, that's got to be, I don't know if that's Tommy doing both of them or Tommy and Paul, but that's more intricate than anything they've done since Detroit Rock City. Good point. Good point. Yeah, I'll check that out again for sure. Yeah. Um, So anyhow, final thoughts. Monster. Uh, Better better than um, Sonic Boom. I liked it. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, solid album. Not amazing, but still pretty good all the way around. Like that, the the first three tracks are fantastic. If this turns out to be the last Kiss album and it's the twentieth one, um, I think they've gone out on a high. This is actually my favorite Kiss album since Asylum. Uh, there are six albums in between that, and I could see actual arguments by somebody, but that that this is actually the best uh, Kiss album start to finish since Lick It Up, and I think this is this for me is uh this is the tommy thayer record i think this is this is the album that when they look back and you can look back and see just um exactly how much he actually had to contribute behind the scenes as a songwriter and i'm glad that he got a shot to at least one shot to do this much writing and co-writing with the rest of the band um and so for me i really um if this is the last one they went out good however if they do surprise us with a 21st lp um they will be missing one of the biggest marketing and branding opportunities of all time. If they actually make album 21 and they don't call it blackjack, they will have missed something huge (laughs) because you could go to town for months on the merchandising and the PR possibilities with like card and gambling and that sort of thing themes. So um, here's hoping that they actually have been secretly working on one because I mean, how could you not call your 21st album Blackjack? <laughs> Mike. I would say uh, in, you know, reinforcement of uh, Andrew's point, you're better than calling the next album Double Deuce, right? You only, <laughs> you only have that, right? Because <laughs> 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 only I played in a band that was named Double Deuce and you know, we had a hard time getting bookings. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, that said, it's definitely a, you know, if this was the last album they recorded as a band, you know, so be it. And it's a great testimony to the fact that, you know, they recorded an album that sounded like the band as it was. It wasn't so derivative like uh, Sonic Boom was. You know, it wasn't like Animalized where it's like, where are we going with this? You know, with, with this concept, you know, they, they kind of, they found their their legs in a way. And, and, and this is, if they're going to do it again, they were going to do it like this. And this is a great 
template for what they could have done from then until now. And again, you, if you embrace the band concept, which is really what it's all about, you want to feel like you're a member of the band, right? If you're in the band, you want to be the guitar player, you want to be the drummer, you want to be the guy that, you know, if you want to co-write and you want to be involved, right? It's a, it's a team effort and it works. I think it's less derivative than Sonic Boom and it works. It's, it's, it, it's a stronger album than so Sonic Boom in the way that the production is a little more crisp and list a little less uh, intentional in terms of trying to sound like something they did, they did, they did before. Uh, and also too, from the guitar approach, it sounds like, you know, a Tommy record more so than a guy that's playing Ace Frehley's licks in the guitar solos. And I, th I think it works in that regard. Um, whether or not the songwriting is, 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 you know, is stronger on either record, you know, debatable but either way, but it, sound, it sounds to me like more of a band effort in, on this record. And the production to me is much more interesting than, than Sonic Boom was. For sure. I love this album. I'm one of the guys that thinks it's the best thing they've done since Lick It Up. And, you know, I I would love for them to do more music, but I totally understand why um, they may not feel that it's worth it to do that. Um, you know, I, when looking at the cover, I wish that they hadn't cheaped out and just gone with a photo of the band. I mean, this this album screams to have a new Ken Kelly cover. And they should have ponied up the money to do it. Um, you know, the concept of the album, Monster, these songs are monsters. Kiss are monsters, both in the sense of, you know, being strong and powerful, but also in the sense of people, uh, you know, be, being alienated from them, being scared. When you look at that logo, it sure does look a lot like the Monster Energy Drink logo, which makes me think at one point they had some deal that was supposed to be going on with Monster Energy Drink that fell through and they changed it just enough so that they could still keep that, you know, that logo and not not get called out on it. Um, but if this is the last Kiss album, then so be it. I'm, I'm satisfied with it, but as a KISS fan, I always want more. So in terms of KISS, there will be one more, one more podcast next week. We'll, we will talk about various odds and ends and uh, wrap up the final word that Rock Album Analysts has to say about KISS. So we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. <laughs>